A big thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions help accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated return filing, and more. Listen for a special offer later in the show. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast that features cooked books instead of cannibalism. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Greg, when average people think about fraud, what do you think they think about? I mean, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but just like, you know, your regular schmo, when they think of fraud, what, you know, what comes to mind, you think? Like just the schmo on the street. If you, if you stop somebody and said, hey, list the first fraud scheme that comes to mind that kind of thing that's exactly right they well they'd have to they'd have to come up with what we're going to be talking about today, <laughs> which is ponzi schemes precisely but but absolutely i think that's absolutely what they would say if because most people like if you came up and said what's a lapping scheme they'd be like what are you talking about you're right. weird or if they but, said what's so, check if i if i said to someone what's check kiting and they might say well that's Greg Kite's favorite type of fraud, but that, but yeah, I don't know what right. it is. Maybe it's a type of fraud named for Greg Kite. I don't know. But, but, but yeah. So why do you think it's Ponzi schemes? I mean, well, I think, well, I think I know what you're going to say, but why do you think Ponzi schemes is kind of so vivid in the, in the cultural imagination? Well, unquestionably because of Bernie Madoff. And you know, I, I have to admit as a, as someone who studied accounting, as someone who studied auditing, who even studied fraud a little bit, I don't think before Bernie Madoff, though, I don't think I really understood what a Ponzi scheme was. Like that was the first time where I really sat up and took notice and be like, wait, what did he do? And what? Because Ponzi schemes, it's an old type of fraud, right? It goes oh, back. Yeah. It, I mean, they, they, people have been doing Ponzi schemes for a long time. Yeah, for a very, for a very long time. I mean, again, I think I maybe knew what a Ponzi scheme was prior to Bernie Madoff breaking, but it, it was totally a textbook. Like, I think they had like a, a lunch and learn at my accounting <laughs> firm and talked about it. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, obviously when Madoff came around, then it's like, oh yeah, okay, now I get it. And now it just, it, was, it seems to looms large, it looms large. And yeah. In the and, and, and again, most, most people, I would, I want to say, and again, it's probably just our little world we live in, but, but I, I'm confident that most people know what Ponzi schemes is because of Bernie Madoff. That little, uh, little gassy from the Coke? A little what? gassy. Got okay. a little Diet Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Got a little Diet <laughs> hate Coke it. coming up. I hate, hate I, it when that happens. I know. I choose. It's my choice. I, I choose to drink soda while recording my voice. I'm a pro. Shut up. What else we got? <laughs> Well, I think what's ex <laughs> what's so fascinating is like, you know, for the, you know, I suppose people are expecting us to talk about the Madoff episode, but no, right? We're not no. going. To, we're not going to. We're not going. We're not going into the Madoff uh, saga, uh, mostly yeah. because it's been beaten to death. But yeah, also, what do you think? What do you think this is? Some kind of basic podcast? No, absolutely Boo. not. Absolutely not. Like Greg said, we're pros. But also, because there's been so many Ponzi schemes, there's plenty of fascinating cases to go around. And I think, Greg, you get credit for this. I think, Greg, you landed on one. It, this I love, I love this case. The more that I dug into this case, the more I loved it because not only is it not only is it is it a, a, a Ponzi scheme. But it's like an organic, like it didn't start out as a Ponzi scheme, but it organically morphed into a Ponzi scheme. And there's some, and even the original business that morphed into the Ponzi scheme is so cringy, it <laughs> makes for a wonderful story. So no, no Madoff for this episode. We're going to talk about one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in the 21st century, and it is uh, the case of Mutual Benefits Corporation. So when we'll come back, we'll get into it. And it is the mother of all Florida man frauds. So stick around. <laughs> it's going to be good. So before we went to break, we just kind of... <laughs> 
we kind of just said how everyone knows what Ponzi schemes are and that it's what everyone thinks of when they think about fraud. But just to be sure all our bases are covered, we're going to go over what Ponzi schemes are, how they work. Right. And actually, right. Yeah. Well, right before we went to break, we said that we were going to come back and talk about Mutual Benefits Corporation, and we're we're going to get there. We weren't fraudulent in that in that claim. We're getting there. Just hold on and stick around because we're going to get to it. My understanding of the Madoff case that we're not yep. talking about on this podcast is that it's a great example of how Ponzi schemes work, where you say, hey, you invest in this, you're going to get some amazing returns on it. And you take the person's money and you never actually invest it. But then when the next guy invests, you take his money and pay off the first guy to go, hey, here's those returns I was telling you about. And then the second guy, you go, you're going to get some pretty great returns. So hang on. And then you get a new, another investor and that guy's money, you pay the second guy. So third, so every investor, instead of having their money invested in it and it being an investment that earns its keep through growth and through you know well-managed companies and businesses and things like that. Instead, you're just a funnel from one investor to the next investor. The critical piece of any Ponzi scheme is the ability to recruit new investors. Yes. Right. Once money stops coming in, the mastermind can no longer pay the returns that they've been promised to the earlier investors. Mm -hmm. And then that's where things can start to unravel. And and a red flag for a Ponzi scheme is always that the investment is always claiming these amazing returns mm-hmm. for your for your money. Like they're saying you're going to get a 30% return, you're going to get a 40% return, you're going to get a a 60% return on your money. That should be what people go, yeah, the, you know, if it sounds too good to be true it is. And actually one of the one of the genius reasons why the Madoff Ponzi scheme got so big is that he was he was promising people like 14%, which is right. good, but it's not like bonkers good. So A, that helped because it wasn't a red flag of people going, you know, 45% return is unrealistic. I don't think you're for real. So he was underneath, you know, he, he passed that red flag test. But the other thing, Caleb, that you don't think about is if you're only promising people 14% return, it takes a lot fewer new investors to pay off on a 14% re- return it's than true. it does to pay off on a 45% return. Yeah. So he I, can, he can, he was stretching his Ponzi scheme dollars is what I'm saying. He was the frugal pond. He was the frugal multi-billion yeah. dollar Ponzi and, and a mastermind. lot of people. And because of that, that's why that's what a lot of people believe is why he was be able to carry on, carry on his particular Ponzi scheme for so long. So you mentioned features of uh, the, the one of the most important features of a or a red flag of a Ponzi scheme is the is the the promise of high returns or or a lot of times people will say guaranteed returns and yeah, so yeah. Uh, the SEC the Securities and Exchange Commission has uh, a website investor.gov it has all kinds of information for investors but one of the pages they have is a is a laundry list of red flags for Ponzi schemes and. Chief among them is, like we said, high returns with little or no risk, overly consistent returns. So again, when you beat the market yeah. 40 years in a row, that should give you pause. Right. Um, or if you say you're going to get 20% return every year and every year you hit exactly 20%, right. it's kind of like, mm, it's a little maybe, suspicious. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, also unregistered investments. So a lot of mm-hmm. times uh, Ponzi schemes involve instruments that are not registered with either federal or state regulators. And the mm-hmm. registration is important because it provides investors access to information. So a lot of times Ponzi schemes will just, the investment will be some that is something that you isn't available just to anybody. Right. right? And then unlicensed sellers. And, oh. and can, will you clarify yep. this to me? Yeah. It's illegal to sell unregistered. Like that's just illegal in, a, in and yeah, of that's, itself. To, that's, to, yeah, unregistered securities. Well, it, it's happening a lot. That's just lo- the basics. Right. It's it's happening a lot right now. And again, not an expert, but that's what's happening a lot with cryptocurrencies and like tokens uh-huh. and things like that. People are yeah. basically selling those. The Securities and Exchange Commission is saying, that's a security and yeah. you're not registered. So we're shutting you down. So yeah, that's right. that's a good yeah. example of, of yeah. you know, registering a security. Unlicensed sellers. I think I mentioned that. 
Let's see. Oh, secretive complex strategies. So this is a favorite. Oh, so like right. if you go in, if you're a rich person and you go in or even just an average, uh, average person and you, and you're meeting someone that, uh, is a, an investment guru and you ask them to explain their, uh, their, their investment strategy and they uh, either a don't or B say it's too complicated. Maybe don't invest with that person. Which again, I love all these red flags that you're saying because it makes me so like horny for this case <laughs> because because so many of them don't apply it to the mutual benefits corporation. Right. So I love it. Right. Keep it going. Exciting. Okay. And going. so the hit last me, two hit me with some more. The last two issues with paperwork. So frequent errors on your account statements, which Okay. Yeah, that should never happen. Right. And that's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Any any like financial statement that you get of any kind that has errors in it, you should be like, yeah, maybe these guys aren't top notch. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not so uh maybe not so tight on the on the bookkeeping. And then finally, yeah. uh difficulty receiving payments. So this is mm -hmm. what happened kind of with Madoff, mm -hmm. which is things start to go bad when you as an investor, you ring up your guy and you say, Hey, you know, things are kind of going bad right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to call in, call in my investment and guy and the guy's like in, in a normal circumstance, you can redeem at any time unless there's yeah. specific rules like hedge funds and stuff will say, now nah, you're locked up for 10 years. You can't get your money. Right. And you know that going in, right? If you're invested with somebody and there's nothing like that and you call them up and you're, and you're getting antsy and you want your money and you call them up and like, uh, it might be a week or two. That is not good. And right. in the case of Madoff, what happened was it was late 2008 and things, things were going real bad at that time yeah. and more redemptions were coming in than he could possibly pay. And so it fell apart. And so, yeah, yeah there's you go. There's your, yeah. there's your Ponzi scheme, red flags, Greg Kite. And that's the thing. And, and it's funny because the last one, like having to wait to like, if you go and go, Hey, I need my money back, my invested money back. I like a red flag doesn't seem like the right description for that. Cause that's really an indication that they're at the tail and like <laughs> right. your past red flag, like red flags are supposed to say, Hey, bad idea, bad idea. And at that point it's like, Oh, it you're, you're screwed. It's that's actually more too of a, late. you're screwed. It's yeah. too late. You're, your money's, you're screwed. Your money's gone. Your money's gone. Sorry. Cool. Sorry. Sorry, Sorry. about that, man. And we talked about this and we can't really, we know that this is outside the scope of this podcast. But uh, pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes are very, very closely related. And th the thing that they have in common is, like you said, they're dependent on on new money to keep them going. But it's not just new money. It's a it's a exponential growth hmm. of new money to keep the old money happy. So it's not just that you need one new investor to take care of the one old investor. You need to keep getting more and more and more investors to make to keep everyone happy and eventually the the world is just going to run out of people that you could possibly even get in your scheme to keep it alive. So there's always going to be some invisible line that you cross it. And, and then at that point it, it, it can't, it's, un, it's unsustainable and it'll fall apart. And that's, that's exactly what happens with pyramid schemes and people don't understand is the the math is a little mind boggling how quickly that can add up. It, and that's another thing that makes the Madoff case so impressive is that it kept going for so long because you need so many investors to keep it going. Right. But we're not talking about the Madoff case. No, this isn't about the Madoff case. This isn't about the Madoff case. Because we're not basic. We're not basic bitches. All right. <laughs> so as we promised, we're going to talk about the Mutual Benefits Corporation. We will this time promise, cross my heart, after the break, we'll get into the details of the Mutual Benefits Corporation Ponzi scheme. So stick around. Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Our sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and clients. Whether you are a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other indirect and direct taxes. 
In October 2021, IDC MarketScape named Avalara a leader in tax automation in three categories, small and mid-sized business, enterprise, and VAT. If you're considering tax automation, check out the independent IDC evaluations at omf.show slash Avalara. Once again, that's omf.show slash Avalara. And later, we will be telling you about a special offer for anyone who wants to learn more. All right, so we're back and we're finally ready to talk about the Mutual Benefits Corporation. Oh, are we, are we going to talk about Mutual Benefits Corporation? We're going to talk. We are. Oh, all right. Great. I know. It's I'm finally excited. come. I'm excited. It's, it's here. It's like <laughs> Christmas. So this, this is a story primarily about a dude named Joel Steinger. And this dude... Even before he gets to, so, so yeah, I guess we're not quite at mutual benefits because we're going to talk about all the crap he did before he started mutual benefits. So in 1976, uh, that was his first foray into bad behavior. And he opened a boiler room where he was selling fraudulent commodities options. Uh, he was shut down and he was given his first felony conviction in 1976 for that. Then in the 1980s, he started selling securities. He started selling shares in a bogus oil well. And that time the, the authorities found him, they shut him down, and he received a lifetime ban from selling securities. So Joel Steinger, now he can't sell securities because I guess it's a two strikes you're out because the first one was a boiler room. The second one was the the bogus oil well. And and with the second one, my research, I didn't see that he had a, that he was given another conviction, just that he was given a lifetime ban for selling securities for the bogus oil well. Got it. So uh so so he had done enough bad stuff to where they just said, hey, you're done. You can't play this game anymore. But being the consummate uh uh entrepreneur, Joel Steiger, his third his third big business business venture was selling diet pizza. Uh that was his his big money money maker. And apparently this is what this is this is what they say in the uh in the acclaimed documentary series American Greed was that Joel Steiger would just somehow would like would buy Sparrow's pizza. And then repackage it with like a a label that says diet pizza, and then he'd sell normal pizza that says diet pizza to people who are like diet pizza. That's got it. And the crazy thing, and, and the thing I think is hilarious about that is that Sparrow's Pizza is like the shittiest pizza that's on mall, the planet. That's mall it, food court crap greg it's the worst but then if you're going oh this is diet pizza it's probably not going to taste very good and you eat sparrows you're gonna go yeah this is this tastes just like how i'd imagine a diet pizza to taste so <laughs> that was the third one he got shut down with that one as well and then in 1991 he started a company called galaxy wholesale corporation where this this was his business model there doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but this was the business model. He buys groceries cheap in Puerto Rico. He brings them to the United States and he sells groceries for a profit. So it was a grocery import business from Puerto Rico to the mainland US for a profit. Apparently his sales pitch was very good because he had a lot of people invest in his groceries business. And, and actually, it apparently was was somewhat successful during the first two of the three years that it was in existence. But then in 19, so it opened in 1991, and by 1994, he like apparently he just it was it was one of those things where uh, you you hear about it, you see it in movies where there's this company that has offices and has employees one day, and then the next day you show up and everything's gone. All of the copper is pulled out of the walls. There's no one in there. The toilet paper has been stolen out of the bathroom and it's just, it, you know, there's tumbleweeds blowing through the office. And that's what happened just all of a sudden with the Galaxy uh, Wholesale Corporation. And uh, not only did he disappear and not only did Galaxy Wholesale Corporation disappear, but a million dollars of investor money just poof, went away. I guess what I find myself wondering is, did Steinger, did he have a reputation by this point? If he had done these scams, like how right. was he able to keep 
his how was he so effective at keeping his history kind of hidden from new people? Like, why right. were they not able to like you know do some due diligence or something and find out that this guy is a shady character? But be that as it may, mm -hmm. Greg, and that's where we get in the mutual benefits corporation because this was a for real money making venture. And it had to do with what's called viatical settlements, which sounds like uh, an erectile dysfunction kind of uh, uh, scheme, but viatical uh, settlements is not a ED treatment. A Did you know what had you? Ever, I'm, I'm sure you hadn't heard of what viatical settlements were not, before this. Yeah, I had not heard of viatical settlement uh, settlements, and at first I just thought, well, it sounds kind of made up. So viatical settlement, here's, here's how that, so that what's works. a viatical settlement, Greg. Great. I'm going to, I would love to explain it to you and to our listeners. The a viatical settlement works like this. You've got someone who's terminally ill, but they also have a life insurance policy hmm. and they, and generally speaking, this person, if they're going to be involved in a viatical settlement, they also have to have some sort of need for cash right now. And they've sort of run out of other alternatives to get the cash, but they have a life insurance policy that will pay off after they're dead. They go, that's too late for me. I need the money now. So what happens is you have someone who comes in who say, who's going to say, Hey, I will pay you some cash now. Basically, if you make me the beneficiary of your life insurance policy, once you pass away. So the amount of cash that's given to the terminally ill person with the life insurance policy it's going to be more than the cash surrender value of the policy because most life insurance companies are like, if you're really desperate for cash, come to us and we'll pay you a fraction of what we would have paid you when you're dead. And we already got all your, uh, all of your um, premiums over the years. So we're going to make out like bandits. And if you're in a real tough spot, we'll do that for you. And that's always generally spelled out in the boilerplate, you know, deep into the fine print of the contract of the life insurance policy. But so so a viatical settlement is always going to be greater than the cash surrender value because otherwise the person would just get the cash surrender value and not want to sell it to anybody else. But if but I it's so also, if I can stop you for a second, but if I yeah. understand it right, it was still a discount from oh the total value of the policy, right? A massive discount from okay. the total value of the policy. So then like, that means so you're just saying what I think you're trying to say is like the surrender value is not very much money. It's and, teeny. It's right. teeny. And this is like double the teeny value is kind of what you'd get for this. Got so it. it's like the, the, the cash surrender value is insulting, especially if you're terminally ill. Right. And so after you look at the insultingly low, it's an anchor pricing. So these guys would anchor price with what the cash surrender value was for your life insurance policy. And then they'll say, we'll give you double that, which was still chump change. The example that I saw was a million dollar policy that would be bought out for a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and, and, uh, so, so, but we'll, but we'll get to that in just a second. Cause there's some, there's some intricacies in terms of how it's priced. Um, but what you what what you have to do then is you you so you give the sick person the cash but then also they're supposed to continue paying life insurance policy premiums until they pass away that's how life insurance works but obviously after they get the cash they're like going I don't need to pay these premiums anymore so then the burden for paying the premiums is on the person who who purchased the viatical settlement from the terminally ill person. So, so in terms of, here's, here's an example for you. And, and, and here's the other thing, I guess this is what we we're getting at before. If, if you've got a million dollar life insurance policy and your life expectancy is one year, people are willing to give you more money because you're going to die really soon than if your life expectancy is 10 years. Does that make sense? It does. Because if I, if I have to wait 10 years to get my, my money back, then I'm going to need to see a whole lot of return because it's not an annual. I'm looking for 10 years of return for what I put into it. But if I give you my money and, and you're going to die next week, then I can give you a lot closer to that settlement value of your, of your life insurance policy. Cause I'm going to get it just right around the corner. Right. So, and this is, so, yep. 
That all makes sense. And this was awesome. critic and this was critical. This was a critical component of, critical. of M- MBC, Mutual Benefits yes. Corporation. This was critical to their absolutely. Scam. Right. Absolutely. So here's here's a quick here's a quick example of how this viatical stuff works. So let's say I'm Mutual Benefits Corporation. I go to an AIDS patient, and that's that's actually very, very uh poignant to this case because they targeted people who were suffering from AIDS. This we're talking early 90s. It's right in the middle of the massive scare for the AIDS epidemic. So let's say they find someone who is just diagnosed with AIDS uh, and they have a life insurance policy, but these guys are going through just massively expensive treatments, especially at the time because they were mm-hmm. brand new cutting edge treatments back in the early 90s. So they need money to continue getting the treatment. They got a million dollar life insurance policy. So NBC Mutual Benefits pays them $100,000 for their $1 million policy. So they have, so now they have a $1 million payout that happens when this AIDS patient dies. And so they take that $1 million policy and they resell it to an investor for $600,000. So I just paid $100,000 for the policy, but I, I resell it to an investor for $600,000. That's the extent of the investor's investment in this viatical settlement, but it's still on MBC to continue paying the premiums on that life insurance policy until the person dies. And so they'll escrow they'll escrow the amount of the premiums for the estimated lifespan of that person who's going to die. They're supposed to escrow it, and then they pay that money off during the number of years. So let's say that person lives for four more years at $20,000 a year premium. That's $80,000. So NBC is into this $180,000, but they got $600,000 from the investor. So their profit is $420,000. The investor was in it a million dollars. They paid $600,000. So their profit is $400,000. But, and so you look at that and you go, oh, I spent $600. I got a $600,000. I got $400,000 of profit from that. You go. That's a that's a sixty seven percent return on my money, and I would go no because it took you four years to get that money back. So if you spread that sixty seven percent return over four years, you're getting about seventeen percent, a little less than seventeen percent every year on that. Which again, that's a good investment, but the eye popping number is the sixty six percent, which is funny because mutual benefits, when they would present these two potential investors, they wouldn't show the annual return. They would just say, hey, you invested 600,000, you, you, you got a $400,000 profit. That's a 66, 67% return on your money. That sounds great, doesn't it? And people go, yeah, that sounds amazing. Here's all my money. And it creates a crazy thing where investors then start to have to root for the Grim Reaper to kill people so that they can get, because the sooner they die, the more money you make. And and that's true for both parties. That's true for NBC, because the earlier that somebody dies, the fewer policy premiums they have to pay. So that's a benefit for NBC. And then for the investor, the sooner they die, that shortens the number of years. So, so if you do get the 67% return, you get in a shorter period of time, which increases your annual rate of return on that investment. Okay. And so 100% and 100% legal. Okay. This is right. No Bi- problem. Right. Biatical settlements are as strange as it sounds, they are, they are illegal. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? The Avalara for Accountants compliance automation platform helps accounting service providers grow their client base with sales tax prep and filing, business license management, and more. And Avalara Managed Returns for Accountants was recognized as a best product in 2021 through CPA Practice Advisors Technology Innovation Awards. 
Want to learn more? Well, stick around because later in the show, we're going to tell you about a special offer. Okay. I want to ask one more question before we move on. Yes. But like, yes. if I understand it correctly and, and keep me honest here, but if I understand the case correctly, Mutual Benefits Corporation wasn't just selling one life insurance policy to one investor. They were breaking it up into like essentially fractional ownership of a single policy. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yep. So yeah, they would in do other that. words, that allowed them to attract multiple investors for one quote unquote security, even though it's not mm -hmm. technically a security. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And even with that, they would, they would often uh, fractionalize multiple of these settlements. I mean, if you're just a single investor, they, you would say, okay, I've got $40,000 <throat> and they'd say, okay, we've got a, a portfolio of a few different people who are terminally ill and you're going to get a little bit, a little, a little bit of each of their it, when each any of these four people dies, that's a great day for you. Oh God! That's, so basically, a basket of terminally ill people. A basket of death. They, you just yeah, bought I mean, a basket of death. <laughs> uh, so, but but what's grim, crazy? So here's the grim, but, but, folks. But it wasn't. Listen, here's the crazy thing because they put this awesome spin on it too, right? Because because to the investors, they say, listen, there's these terminally ill people and they're fucked yep. like so right. hard by life and right. they've got nothing. The only asset they got right now is a life insurance policy that doesn't help them at all, which was especially true for a lot of the people. I mean, we in the 1980s, a, a large percentage of the people who were suffering from AIDS were was part of the LGBTQ community yep. at that time. Yep. And the LGBTQ people, as as a whole, have fewer uh, children than than the straight community, and so because of that, you you would have a lot of people who were not just in that position, but go, I don't really have any, I don't have kids right. to be my beneficiaries. I and maybe I have some nieces, some nephews, so, you know, brother, something like that, but not any direct progeny to to leave this money to. So they would be like, oh, and it it's kind of you know maybe they had it through work or something like this. And they're going, this is sort of a useless thing that I have that's not going to benefit me in any way. So you come in and go, you're going to be helping people who are suffering from AIDS. And one of their target markets was actually people who had loved ones who had died from AIDS. And they go, hey, you're that 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 person that you loved who died from AIDS, they they could have totally used an extra two hundred thousand dollars in their dying days and couldn't get it. If you do this, you're going to get money to people who need it. And then also to the people selling them, again, they, you know, this was the, the way for them to look good is they're going, we're giving you way more than your cash settlement from your insurance policy. And again, it doesn't, your life insurance policy doesn't mature till you're dead. Mm -hmm. So your life insurance policy helps you zero. We're going to help you more than zero. So it's so so it's a good thing, right? And that's so even though yes, you're buying a basket of death, it still can be framed in this incredibly altruistic thing, which they did and mutual benefits company to make sure they didn't look like dicks for this horrible uh this horrible business that they were trading in. They gave tons of money to charities and right. especially to charities like helping AIDS victims, things like that. So they're like going, we're helping them this way and we're helping them that way. And we're donating tons of money that, that we got through this thing. So we're, we're the good guys. We're the good guys. Hey, over here, look at us. This is a weird business, but we're the good guys. Right. That's, okay. Uh, that. So that's how if, they did it. If we move, if we, if we, if we keep things moving, my next, yeah. my next two <laughs> questions are where, how does this thing go sideways? And uh -huh. how does it, how does it, well, and, is, and the follow-up to that is like, is, is there, is there something that happens that, that causes things to go sideways and how does it become a Ponzi scheme then? The, okay. So the, the biggest way that, so, so far legit business, right? The way, the main way that this goes sideways is that you, you, you fit well. And actually one of the, one of the people who was a spokesperson for mutual benefits corporation was Greg Luganis, the the Olympic yep. swimmer, right. and his his policy was he was the recipient of funds. Uh, he was the Viator, which is the name of the person who sells their 
in life insurance policy because he was diagnosed with AIDS. Yep. And he, Greg Luganis, he sold his life insurance policy. Greg Luganis is still alive. Yep. He still hasn't died. And that's what we're seeing is that you started to have people because because back in the late 80s, early 90s, AIDS, like a diagnosis of AIDS was a death sentence. It's yep. like you are going to die and it's going to be horrible. So that so everything sucks for you. But then they started seeing that people who were diagnosed with AIDS still lived a full life, much like Greg Luganis. That ruins the investment of a viatical settlement right. when the person that you need to die to get your money back doesn't fucking die. Why can't you just die? And they don't, and that and, and that's what ruins it. So that's when what that's when the Ponzi scheme starts is right there. So instead, because uh, surprise, surprise, Mutual Benefits Corporation did not keep the premiums that they needed to continue to pay on these life insurance but They didn't keep them in escrow. They were they were living the high life on their super yachts and with their with their uh, with their prostitutes and with their cigars and with their liquor. And that's so they were they were bl- blowing all their money like that. And if Instead I understand of- it right, if I understand it right, the way they did it is they basically set up these shell companies and M- M- oh, yeah. B- MBC yes. paid Joel Steinger, his brother, yeah. a couple of brothers, and some other dudes. They paid them consulting fees. And Huge. Like, right, like millions in consulting fees yeah. rather than, as you pointed out, putting that money into escrow where it needed to be. Where well, that, right. well that's what they were exactly. selling their investors. Yeah. Right. And and again, legally, that's what they needed. That's the way this is a legal thing. And you bring up an interesting point, because as we brought up already, Joel Steinger, he was the he was the kingpin behind this, but he had a lifetime ban from selling securities. Right. So he was not the president CEO. He was just a consultant to this company. But in reality, he was a hundred percent the man running the business. Yep. He but needed paper, he needed he needed uh he needed a front man. The president of MBC, MBC, was this guy, Peter <laughs> Lombardi. Oh, and- gotcha. Yeah. And that's, and I knew that. So, so yeah, Joel's not, he's not the man. And, and, and what's very interesting. So this, so mutual benefits started in 1994. In 1998, they, they were starting to get tons of complaints about mutual benefits corporation, because again, people weren't dying fast enough. And so, uh, so, so the complaints led to an investigation by the SEC and the FBI. And here's what here's what the result was of the 1998 investigation. Is this is the Steingers were enjoined from violating federal securities laws, which basically means that the FBI and the SEC were just like, "Hey, knock it off, knock it off." <laughs> and that and that yeah. was the end of the investigation. Yep. that was it. And so they're like, yeah, okay, we will. And then they go back to not knocking it off. Yeah, going back and they, to fraud. They, right. And and at this point, the fraud, they they like redouble their efforts. Things start going into hyperdrive because, again, there's this exponential need for new investors and to slow down, like you were saying, to slow down the payments out to other people. They needed they needed more money and they needed to pay it out slower. So, so one of, well, and- and they and really they were killing themselves from both of these. The way they got more money is they would fake the life expectancy mm-hmm. of the people who were going to die. And typically, again, they would shorten the life expectancy because let's say somebody really had a five-year life expectancy and they say, oh, this guy only has a one-year life expectancy. Remember, the shorter the life expectancy, the more valuable the, the policy because you'd have to wait less time to get your your return on it. So they could, so again, if they sold, if they bought a policy for a hundred thousand dollars and they say, Oh, this guy's going to die next year. They could maybe sell that for $800,000 as opposed to $600,000. If he was going to take a few years to die. So by shortening the life expectancy, they were able to increase the money they got from new investors. The more money they get from new investors, the easier it is to pay off the angry ones who are going, why won't my person die? And to keep them you know, placated and quiet. So, uh, but then they put themselves between a rock and a hard place because then in a year, those guys are saying, why isn't my guy dying? And it's because they're not, 
they're because the the life expectancy was forged. The other crazy thing about that is that when they would get investors to come in, they would say that they had an independent doctor who was making the assessment of the life expectancy of the the different life insurance policy, uh, you know, the people who were covered by the policy. And and, and A, that doctor was 100% not independent because they were absolutely in the back pocket of Mutual Benefits Corporation. But beyond that, there was a lot of times where Joel Steinger was just like, I don't have time for this bullshit. And he would just write down the life expectancy that he wanted on the policies right. so that he could get the, the money that he needed. So completely circumventing. So so it's like he had crooked doctors on the books, but sometimes he just didn't have the patience for that. Yeah, they weren't crooked just, enough for his liking, basically. Yeah, or they yeah. or their crookedness wasn't fast enough right. or, or whatever it was. <laughs> right. So or right. everybody just knew it was such bullshit that it's like, why why are we even playing this game? Just give me the document and I'll write the the life expectancy on it. Right. So cut okay. out the middleman. So I want to so moving forward just a little bit, as you're talking about, yeah. like like things are starting to grow fast. For these, yeah, for these guys, yep. And so, yeah. I'm just curious. So, and and two of the important things here is um, that uh, most of these policies that we they were selling were still active, and mm-hmm. most of them had surpassed. You know, most of the 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 uh, viators had surpassed their life expectancy. So ninety percent of the viators right. were and so were you had mentioned that one, I think you mentioned what it what triggered the initial investigation was that lots of people were complaining to authorities right. that this was going on. So then yes. so then my question is like then then what was ultimately the thing because if if the authorities are like if they just tell them to knock it off and they say they don't do it. So then where does it go from there? Like you say, they doubled down how big at, at its peak, how big did it get? And then eventually how did things start to unravel? Yeah. Well, and I, and, and it crumbled because of the sheer weight of the, of the fraudulent organization, because at, by the time that, cause so they were shut down in 2004. And at that point they had over, they had over 29,000, uh, investors at that point with a total book of business of, I, I believe it was $1.25 billion of assets yep. that they were managing. And, and with, and again, 90% of these investors were not getting their money anywhere near as close to the amount of time as what they were promised. So they're, so they're starting to go, wait a second that you told me one year, it's been four so what's going on with this? I think something's wrong with this. And it was because there was fraud. There was there was the fraud in terms of lying about the life expectancy. And there was the Ponzi scheme part of this as well. So all that stuff, once you get to 30,000 people who are being put off and who aren't who aren't getting uh, the returns that were promised to them, that's just that that ends up being a, a squeaky enough wheel that ends up being enough. Uh, straw on a camel's back to where the SEC had to come in and look at them again, and the FBI did, and they were like, "Yeah, this is all crap. We're shutting it all down. Everybody goes to jail." Yeah. So, um, a really interesting read is the SEC complaint, which you can dig up. It's pretty easy to find, <laughs> but it's in our show notes. So, if you you care to read that, you can click it in there. And and from the show notes. Uh, I'll just read. It's very brief. Uh, As of September 30, 2003, approximately 81% of the policies remained active and in force. Uh, And of the active policies, 90% have surpassed the life expectancy assigned by NBC. So big problem, really big problem, problem. right? And so maybe now, maybe let's, maybe we should just like run down so there, there's there's fraud all over the place, but I don't yeah. think we've we've explicitly said what the wrongdoing is. So maybe we should we should do that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And you've and you've got that. In I the do. SEC this, yeah, I've got yeah. it straight from. So there's there was seven of them in the complaint, See, I, and I'll yeah. I re- I read the fun stuff and watched the movie. You actually read the legal briefing. Yeah, I, I like did. I yeah. like this. I like the separation of duties right. we have here. This, yeah. this works so good for the, me. If you go to the complaint uh, and they you go to the to the basically where they outline each of the frauds, how they broke the law. There were seven of them. Number one, mal, uh, false and misleading life expectancy letters and affidavits. Uh, two, Clearly. failure to disclose that the vast majority 
of MBC's policies are beyond their assigned life expectancy. Three, failure to disclose premium escrow deficiencies. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. Four, misrepresentations of guaranteed fixed rate of return. Classic Ponzi scheme. Okay. Number yes. five, failure to disclose the t- the Steingers' in- involvement as principals in MBCs right. and the payments because made were, to them. Because they were lifetime bans. They had yep. lifetime bans, and mm-hmm. they were not telling the investors that they were being paid consulting fees. Ah, right. Rather than right. that, that money being sense. put into escrow, right? Right. Okay. Yep. Six, failure to disclose the risks associated with MBC's purchase mm. of group and term life policies. So that mm-hmm. one was a little bit, that was a little tough to understand, but the basic gist of it was group and term life policies are risky. These are risky investment products, and they basically weren't honest about just how risky they were. They they right. they kind of undersold that aspect of it. And finally, yeah, failure yeah. to disclose state, state securities actions. I don't know if you picked up on this, Greg, but these guys were being investigated by at least five states. And they didn't tell okay. the, they didn't tell the investors about that. Like they had been sent right. cease and desist letters, and like had had things had had, right. had things filed um, by states against them, and they didn't tell in, the investors about any of that stuff. And which uh, when you don't also, do that is that's that is against the law. You have to disclose all that stuff. Which is awesome because again, it sounds it sounds like there was multiple cases of that 1998 thing where they were just like, hey. You guys knock it off. Knock it off. And then la- and then there was states coming to go, hey, didn't we tell you to knock that off? Right. And then another state's like, like, hey, how many times we gotta tell you to knock that off? And uh, eventually they 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 And they to, didn't knock they, it off. They, they had to be sent to their room, which was right. a, a small jail cell right. that uh that happened. So um so yeah, so how did all that I remember is that Joel Steinger he was able to delay his sentencing yeah. for a massive amount of time yep. because he said he had spinal stenosis and as a result couldn't control his bowels. So he was like, <laughs> I could come to court, but I'm going to shit all over the place. Is that what you want? Or maybe we can delay the case I, till till my till my adult diapers come in. I buddy. don't th- I don't think that's what you want, your honor. Um uh, yeah. yeah, so y- you're right. He was the DOJ the DOJ uh press release upon his um uh, sentencing, I believe. Again, in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh yeah, that was only 2014. So yeah, he he was able to delay yep. his trial uh conviction and sentencing for over a decade whereas a lot of the yep. other players they were sentenced early on and a lot of them got long sentences, 10 years, 20 years. Um, right. And there was, I think, uh, a baker's dozen in total who yeah, were really? ultimately found or pleaded guilty. Oh. So quite, okay. quite the conspiracy. Fa- fact check me on this. Yeah. My understanding is that Leslie Steinger didn't actually, was never convicted because he died of cancer in 2008. You are right? correct. Yes. And what's and and why that seems so crazy where it's like the guys who were betting that other people are going to die that they died before they had a chance to get convicted. There's something like strangely uh you know like a there's a mobius strip in there somewhere that's breaking the time space continuum because of that. That's a what is strip? A mobius strip. You don't even know what that is? No, it's we... the okay. I'll I'll put a diagram in the show notes that you can. I think we need a glossary in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. So okay. anyway, so right. uh, you know, Greg, uh, there, wait. There's somebody listening right now that feels so smug because they know what a Mobius. Hundred percent. And you, 100%. you, I salute you, Blake. Our our producers like I do, I do, <laughs> mofos. So Caleb, you're Caleb, you're the smartest one here, and right now we both get to feel smug. That you that we Smug know away. one we know one thing that you don't know. Smug That's away. amazing. Smug I'm away. gonna feel great for two weeks because of that. So hey, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. <laughs> so look, so so that's Mutual Benefits Corporation. And that's um, the story. That's the story. And so after the break, we're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about some lessons learned for our accountant, our accountant friends. So stick around and we'll be right back to talk about that. Do your clients need help with sales tax automation? Avalara can help your accounting practice start or grow an existing tax compliance practice while you gain efficiencies 
and reduce risk for you and your clients. Learn more about Avalara for accountants and get a gift. Meet with an Avalara expert to explore how you can help your accounting practice grow and receive a $50 gift card. Contact us at accountants at avalara.com and mention the code word fraud. Okay, we're back. Uh, Our final segment is So What? This is where we relish in our hindsight and remind everyone not to have anything to do with Florida. Um, (laughs) Greg, you know, there's lots of accountants listening. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and you, we are accountants. I'm an erstwhile Mm -hmm. accountant. But um, but I think I think a good question that I think a lot of people might be asking is why should accountants care about Ponzi schemes? I mean, is are they a little bit out of scope for the average? trusted advisor or i mean what what's your what are your thoughts on that uh absolutely not that they're out of scope for the average trusted advisor there's a the easiest thing uh to to point out why accounts need to be aware of ponzi schemes is that there's lots and lots of accounting firms where one of the services they offer their clients is retirement investment and there were people who were investing their ira savings into these viatical settlements through mutual benefits corporation and so if the accountants are able to see the red flags that we talked about for Ponzi schemes, they will be able to help their clients not get bilked out of their hard-earned money uh, in, in their uh, retirement. So that's the, that's, the most, that's the easiest way to say why accountants need to be aware of it. But then also, uh, you know, and again, these guys, the mutual benefits folks, they were, they were taken down by the Securities Exchange Commission. And in my mind, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, so they were a publicly traded company. Because when I think of the SEC, I think of the PCBOA. I think of, you know, why uh, auditors have jobs uh, and and things like that. But these guys were not, it was securities, but it wasn't publicly traded securities. It was privately placed securities. And so they didn't have as, as much of the reporting requirements. So they're not, so likely these guys didn't have to have an annual audit for their stuff, but there are other Ponzi schemes that are audited and auditors need to be able to see into there. Like for instance, you need to at least know your uh, industry well enough to know in this case that they needed to escrow the funds to pay the insurance premiums until the Viator died and the, the uh, insurance policy uh, proceeds were released. So there's a, there's a lot to, that needs to be known by accountants about uh, about Ponzi schemes. It, it, what what are your thoughts? Why why do you think this is important? Uh, yeah, I guess to, what I would add. Yeah, what I would add to to your comments is that because of the nature of Ponzi schemes and how they work, and that they're always recruiting new investors because that's how they keep the scheme going. You have it. It, it only makes sense that word gets out about. Uh, an investment opportunity mm-hmm. that a lot of people that 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 people are going to talk. They're like, "Oh, you got to go with my guy. He's the best. He's like these returns, this and that, and whatever." And if they're talking, and if these people have money to invest like this, they certainly have a tax. They they certainly have a tax professional that 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 does their uh, that prepares their tax returns. And so, yeah. to the extent that those people have awareness in the general community that they are. In this case, it was in Florida. You have to believe that there were CPAs around Florida that knew about Mutual Benefits Corporation. And they probably looked at it and thought, this doesn't smell right. You know? And yeah. like when you have 30,000, ultimately at the end of it, you had 30,000 investors. Like word's yeah. going to get around. Like, you know, the the secret, a secret is only safe with two people and one of them is dead. Right. So right. this, there, there has to be like, you know, the, sc- the scuttlebutt of a, an investment opportunity too good to be true to but, the extent that anyone has awareness of that. I think you owe it to yourself and your peers and your clients, of course, to be like, let's maybe not go that way. Let's maybe not but, do business with those people. But I don't think that's how human nature works because oh, here, go on. Be, go because on. because you're right. I there's gonna be people who because the early investors, so the early investors, the later investors that they are able to get, they're using their funds to pay so that the early investors can actually get 
the the returns that they were promised. So the early investors are going, oh my God, this is an amazing investment. And they go out and say, hey, everybody should be investing in this because it's fantastic. But then what you have is you have the nerds, the the horrible, uh, you know, killjoy accountants that we are who come and say, ah, I don't think this, this feels right. And everybody's like, oh, shut up. You're so risk averse. You're so, you're so lame. You don't even have any friends. You don't know good music. So we don't, so leave us alone. We're too busy making money to listen to you throw a wet blanket on our, on our cash machine that we just found over here. So people, as soon as people see, oh my gosh, this guy got rich by this. I need to get in uh, as soon as I can, so I can get rich like that guy did. And anybody who's trying to tell me different is just they're, they're, they don't, they don't want me to have fun. They're jealous or something like that. That's, I think that's the real interpersonal dynamics mm. that happen with that. So let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's a chance that even though people, people might even have their suspicions or doubts about this a venture like this, they might think, huh, some people say he's a con artist, but I don't think so. I think, you know, this is, I'm having too much fun earning these awesome returns and screw screw Vanguard because I don't want 7% a year. I want 70%. So I guess what I'm yeah. saying is, yeah, yeah. You, th you think that's a part of it. You think that's part of the psychology. Ab absolutely. If you're a CPA and you have people and you've got clients and say you don't manage their wealth, you don't, you don't advise them in that area. And I, a lot of CPAs don't, you, you mentioned right. that many do, yeah. but yeah. most don't. But they mm -hmm. do still, they, they certainly look at a tax return and they see people's investments. They have to report income from investments. And so they have a general sense of, you know, where people have their money. So right. in a professional context like that, do you think the dynamic is the same? Or do you think yeah. that people say, well, this is my CPA. I mean, he's a pretty smart guy or smart gal. And like, eh, you know, eh, eh, eh. or they just say, eh, that pencil neck, I don't want to listen to him. He's not fun. He tells me yeah. that I have to pay the government money and I don't want to pay the government. Like, I mean, do you, do you get is that the set? Do you think that's the dynamic? I think that there's a different dynamic between clients and their CPAs. But at the same time, if someone's got their mindset going, this is going to make me a butt ton of money. And their CPA goes, Hey, there's a lot of red flags making this look iffy. They'll go, but I got a friend who he got money out of this and it was a lot. So thanks for, thanks for giving me the heads up on that, but I'm going to go ahead with it. And even if you're hundred percent convinced that it's, that it's a shady deal, how, how, how far are accountants going to, going to push? They're going to go, Hey, no, I am not. Listen, I'm going <laughs> to fire you as a client. If you continue to invest in this company, no, they're not going to do that. They're going right. to go, they're going to go, it's a bad idea. And then when it fall, when it goes to shit, they're going to say, yeah, I, I tried to warn you and you wouldn't listen. And that's, that's what it's going to be. I mean, do you think it would be, do you know accountants who are going to, who are going to push harder than that I mean, with their clients? I mean, there might be some, but you're right. I think the I think the majority of them probably will. They they'll they'll they'll, they'll raise their concern. They'll make their concerns known, and yeah. then they will oh, yeah. they will they will sit back and then and and twiddle their thumbs or munch the yeah. popcorn as 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 the thing falls apart. So yeah, so then I guess yeah, it's kind of like but it but it's your money. It's your neck on the line. That's right. where it's going to end. So with the okay. So then so then I think last thing I'll ask you is. Then what, what's a CPA to do, Greg? What's a CPA well, to do? A CPA really, oh, I mean, even with that, at, at some point, I mean, again, and this, this almost goes back to like a, a risk management standpoint where if you are, if you're very convinced that a investment is a bad idea and that your client's going to lose their shirts, maybe you have them sign something that says, yeah, yeah uh, my CPA said this was a bad. Yeah. And you go, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll account for this and I'll keep you as a client and we'll do this. But I need, this is how, this is how strongly I feel against this. Please sign this thing that, that releases me from any sort of liability. If you go down the toilet, just because so like legit, that's not a bad idea. The other thing is ethically, I think we have a responsibility to beat that drum as loud as we can with our clients. If you really care about them and you're convinced that it's something that's a bad idea that your that your client has been invested in that you you need to do that because again you're so, you're supposed to be their damn trusted business advisor 
And if you're not the guy, how are you a trusted business advisor if eventually you just kind of go, well, it's, I, I can tell you're going to get your head chopped off, but you're, you're a big boy and you made the decision. So uh, I'll just sit back here and watch the guillotine fall. That's, that's not where we should be. Yeah. So some fun lessons. Uh, Greg, uh, great, great show. Uh, I, 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 this was a fun one. Uh, and I think, uh, the audience would maybe like to, maybe, maybe they want to chat with us on Twitter about it. Maybe they want to drop us LinkedIn message. How, how can people get a hold of you? You can get hold of me on Twitter. I'm, it's very easy. I'm at Greg Kite, except for the fact that my ancestors were poor spellers. So Kite is spelled with a Y instead of an I. And on LinkedIn, just search for Greg Kite again with a Y, not an I. Uh, and if you see a, a bald guy with glasses and a beard, that's a shaved head. That's, that's going to be me. So follow me on there. And I, I love to engage with my audience and I got some cool cartoons that I put on both of those platforms that you can check out as well. What about you, Caleb? How can people uh, find you? Um, I'm also on Twitter sometimes at C Newquist, uh, as opposed to old quist. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn <laughs> um, and I'm easy to find on uh, there. I think my, uh, my LinkedIn is my full name, Caleb Newquist. And yeah, Drop us a line on there. And um, again, this is a fun show. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yep. And we can't wait to give you some more frauds next time on Oh My Fraud. This episode of Oh My Fraud was written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Blake Oliver. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh my fraud.